Lord, we pray for your help today. Come and show us the heart of Paul, the things about Paul that we should emulate. We pray that the things that we see that are good and upright, Lord, we would see in our own hearts. Transform us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you might be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Folks, who do you think the Apostle Paul was? I mean, what was he like? What was his personality like? When you read through his epistles and you read through what he did in the book of Acts, you come away with various impressions. One of those impressions is that he was a very driven, type A type personality. You know, just a go-getter, somebody who was on the move for God. He was always busy, always active, always serving God in one way or the other. And that would be true. Another impression we get sometimes is that he was a great intellect, brilliant man had one of the greatest minds of his day. And you see that, we're going to see that when we read through Romans. In fact, Peter says some people distort his words because they're hard to understand. <laughs> he says over in 2 Peter chapter 3. So he was a great intellect. He was the theologian of theologians. But in our passage today, Paul's going to open up his heart to us and let us really see what makes him tick and let us see what's going on in the inside of his heart. He's going to show us a lot about him personally. Uh, Paul had never been to Rome before. So he's writing to people that he had never visited. He does know many of them by name. So he may have uh, met many of them in various cities, but then they had migrated to Rome. But besides the people that he knew, there was a great number of people that he didn't know. And before he unpacks the glorious riches of the gospel in this letter, he needs to unbear his heart because they need to know that he really cares about them and he really loves them. And, uh, you know, the, the person said once, they won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's really what's going on here. He, they need to know that he really cares about them and he wants to see them and he's been planning to see them for a long time and finally he thinks that God's going to open a door so that he can come to them. But in verses 1 to 7, Paul's already told them about his ministry. He's told them something about his Lord. He's told them about his gospel. And he's even told them a little bit about themselves. He told them that they were called and that they were beloved. But now he's going to tell them more about himself, his inner person. 
what's going on inside of him. And he's going to let them see what he's thankful for, what he prays about, what he longs for, and what he feels obligated to do. All of those things arising from his heart. So first of all, verse 8, let's take a look at his thanksgiving. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. First question, who does Paul thank? I thank my God. Now, I find that really interesting. He doesn't say, I thank God. Or I thank the one true and living God, if he wanted to add more words to this. He says, I thank my God. And later in this letter, he, he talks about my gospel, my God. I love that because Paul here has made this great, omnipotent, majestic, powerful God. He says he's mine. He's not just there. He doesn't just exist, but he's mine. And I thought, well, that really seems kind of unusual to me. But the fact of the matter is, it's not really all that unusual. As I've been reading through the scriptures, I've seen uh, David use the expression, Jesus use the expression, and Paul used the expression many times throughout his epistles. Let me just show you that. David in Psalm 23 said, The Lord is my shepherd. Not just a shepherd, he's mine. I shall not want. Jesus, when he's about to go to the cross... Well, actually, he's on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thomas, after Jesus had risen from the dead, and Jesus appeared to the eleven, and, and Thomas was there, uh, he says, take your fingers and put them into the nail prints. Take your hand and put it into my side, where the spear went through, and be not unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God. Right? Paul also does the same thing. It's not just here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Or he says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 21, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Or Philippians 1.3. This is how he puts it there. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Or Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Or that little book, Philemon, right before Hebrews. Look at what he says in verse 4. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. I mean, this is something that Paul... Uh, he. he he used this expression over and over and over in his life. Now, my question for you is, can you make the same claim? Is the one true and living God, is he your God? Is he personal to you, or is he some distant, impersonal deity 
that you know a few facts about, but you don't know him in a real living way. See, there's a huge difference between knowing that God exists and knowing a few facts about God and walking with God every day, where he reveals more of himself to you as you grow in his word and as you speak to him in prayer, there's a developing relationship. Paul had the second. He had a real living relationship with a living and true God. Can you say that I have the same thing? He's not just God. He's my God. In the Song of Solomon, the statement is made, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Are you your beloved's and is he yours? Or in Jeremiah 31, when the blessings of the new covenant are spelled out, God says, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, that's what it means to become a Christian. God becomes yours through Jesus Christ. There is a living union, a living relationship, where he's yours now, and all that he is now becomes yours. So that's the kind of relationship that the Apostle Paul had. That's who he thanked, his God. Secondly, how did Paul thank? He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. That's how he did it. Now, what an interesting expression that is. Paul thanked through Jesus Christ. Well, why did he do that? Why didn't he just thank God? He needed a mediator to be able even to thank God. Do you, do you realize that we can't approach God without a mediator? We have no access to God unless it's through Jesus Christ. We can't pray to him and he hear our prayers unless we have this mediator that gives us access to him. We can't even praise him. It's impossible for you to even praise him acceptably unless you come through Jesus Christ. So Paul is thanking God through Jesus Christ. He, and this, the same thing comes up in Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then... Let us offer up a sacrifice of praise that is fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Through him, we offer up this praise, this sacrifice. You know, recently we've been talking to more and more Muslims, and I know people say, well, should we really even evangelize the Muslims? I mean, they believe in the one true God. They just have a different name for him. They call him Allah. We call him Jehovah or Yahweh, but it's the same, same being, same creator. They believe that he's the creator, he's the judge. Of course, the problem with that is that they don't have a mediator. They don't have a savior through whom they can have access to this great God who has made all things. And the Apostle Paul says, I can't even praise him. I can't even thank him unless I come through Jesus Christ. So yes, all those who do not come through Christ, including Muslims or Hindus or Jews or anybody else, need to be evangelized because they have no access to the one true and living God. Now, thirdly, why did Paul thank God? First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. He's praising and thanking God for their famous faith. See, Rome was the cultural and commercial center of the world at that time. And God was doing a mighty work amongst the believers in Rome. And 
their faith was being spoken of throughout the world. People were taking notice of this and telling others, and it was spreading. Hey, there's a move of God taking place in the imperial city, the capital city of the world, Rome. God is working there. Well, what's interesting to me is um, this faith was so famous, but faith in and of, of itself is, is not something you can see, right? It's invisible. So how were these people taking notice of something that was invisible? They were seeing how that faith moved them to action, weren't they? They were seeing the fruits of faith. That's what Paul was talking about back in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, Through Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. You can see the obedience that is a result of faith. And so... These believers in Rome, their lives were being transformed. It's similar to what we have over in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Let me take you there for just a moment. In verse 9, it says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. <laughs> they were turning from idols. Their whole life was turned upside down. Instead of these blocks of stone or marbles or columns of, of whatever, they were turning from that and they were turning to a living and true God who is invisible. And their life was different and everybody knew it. Everybody could see it. Famous faith. It reminds me of those magicians in the book of Acts. Chapter 19, when you come to the city of Ephesus and these magicians were being converted and they're taking their magic books, which were really valuable, and they're burning them. And everybody in the city is taking notice. Wow, what's going on here? All these magicians are burning their books. What in the world do we have? Well, we have famous faith. Folks, is your faith being taken notice of? Does somebody look at your faith and say, wow, He's, he's different. He, he's not the kind of person I normally meet. What, what is it about him? I, I know there's a difference. I just don't know what it is. And that gives you an opening to say it's Christ. Christ has made the difference in my life. So their faith was famous. And Paul was thanking God for that. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul saw God as responsible for their famous faith. Because you always thank the person you think is responsible for a favor. Like if I go out to my truck and try to turn it on and nothing happens, it's dead, and I go over to my neighbor, Bill, over here, and I say, hey, Bill, could you give me a jump start? And he comes over and gives me a jump, and I go, great. And then I go to my other neighbor next door and I say, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving me that jump start. You say, you're crazy, Brian. <laughs> you thank the guy that helped you, not the guy that didn't do anything at all, right? Paul's thanking God for their faith. Why would he do that? Well, God must have had something to do with their faith, or else there's no point in thanking God for it, right? God must have been working amongst the believers there in Rome to engender faith, to feed their faith, to grow their faith, to mature their faith. God was the one working to make this faith so visible and obvious to the rest of the world. You see, faith is not the sinner's contribution to his salvation. Faith is God's sovereign gift so that he can trust the living God. 
God is responsible. Paul's praising God for it. And the other thing I notice about this Thanksgiving is that Paul was not jealous or envious. Now, you say, why would he be jealous or envious? Because he didn't plant the church. He had nothing to do with this church. Uh, We don't even know how it got started. It might have been on the day of Pentecost. People from Rome came back and witnessed, and a church grew up. Um, Might have been that other believers moved from Philippi or Ephesus, and they moved to Rome, and a church got started. But it wasn't Paul's doing. But in spite of the fact that he had nothing to do with this church, he's really excited for what God is doing there, and he's really happy about it, and he's really joyful. And that convicts me, because sometimes when our little church doesn't grow, and I, I take notice of another church down the road or in this, the city across town that's really experiencing God's blessing and people are being converted there and people are being discipled and growing. It's easy for a pastor, I think probably Pastor Jerome can relate to this, to feel a little envious, like, well, Lord, why, why aren't you doing it here? Why are you doing it over there? But you know, that's a sinful attitude. It, that's wrong because wherever God is working, we should be excited and happy. You know, if we hear of what God is doing in Africa or China or North Korea or other persecuted nations of the world, we hear that God is doing mighty things, converting Muslims by giving them supernatural dreams. That ought to thrill us. And it should be just as exciting if God were doing it right in our midst. See, if we're only excited about what God does here, it shows us how self-centered we really are. We're not God-centered. We're only so, we only care about what's happening within our own little sphere. So let's take a cue from Paul. Let's be excited and happy when we see God working anywhere throughout the world. So there we have his thanksgiving. Let's turn to his prayer now, verses 9 and 10. The first thing I want you to see about Paul's prayers is that they were secret. He says in verse 9, For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Now, how do we know that Paul prayed secretly from this verse? Because he has to call upon God as the witness to his prayers. He can't say, Barnabas will tell you about my prayers, or Timothy, or Titus, or Peter. He says, God is my witness. God knows how unceasingly I'm praying for you. And if God was the only one that knew about this, then Paul was praying by himself in secret. He had a secret devotional life. He was obeying Jesus' instructions in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't pray in the street corner so everybody can notice how spiritual you are and puffed up. No, go into your inner room, your closet, where nobody even knows, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So he had a a, a beautiful secret prayer life. We usually think of all that Paul accomplished during his traveling and his preaching and his writing, but you know, we forget about how much he accomplished through his prayers. It amazes me when I read his letters. He, this is common for him to start off a letter and say, I pray for you unceasingly. I'm praying for you all the time. You think, how do you have time to do anything else if he's always praying for these people? <laughs> you know, that, that's the impression I come away with. He was a man of prayer. And I've learned, as I've studied church history, that every great man of God was also a man of prayer. If you think of Martin Luther, it said about him that he would set apart his best three hours for prayer. 
John Wesley would say, I have so much to do that I must spend several hours in prayer before I'm able to do it. The missionary to the Indians, David Brainerd, would go out into the snow to pray for the souls of the Indians that he was trying to reach for Christ. And when he started out, he'd be surrounded by all the snow. And when he's done, just the, his body heat and the fervency of his prayers would have melted the snow around him. These men were men of prayer. We, we can learn from them. You know, it's convicting <laughs> to read what Paul's prayer life was like and what Brainerd's prayer life was like and compare it to my own puny little prayer life. We need to grow in our prayer life with the Lord. Paul was one of the busiest men who ever lived, I would think. He was making tents, or he's preaching, or he's visiting from house to house, or he's teaching, or he's writing letters to all these churches, he's traveling by sea, he's traveling by land, he's always going, going, going. But that didn't stop him from a life of prayer. Paul knew that his, his devotional life with God had to be priority, and he made it priority. Let's, let's take a lesson from him. If we're too busy for prayer, we need to take a lesson from Paul and we need to say, I'm just too busy then. Something's got to go because my time with God cannot be sacrificed. I need to reprioritize some things here. Uh, the second thing I see about Paul, Paul's prayers is that they were ceaseless. He says in verse 9, God's my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request. Now, we can get the wrong impression here. We can think, well, what Paul was meaning to say was that he never did anything but pray. All the time. 24 hours a day, that's all he ever did. But that's not really what he means. And we know that's not because we read about all the other things that he did in his life. He couldn't have been always praying and never doing anything else. The word, when it says without ceasing, carries the idea of a chronic cough. Have you ever had one of those coughs where you have that tickle in the back of your throat? Oh, it drives me crazy when I have that. And all through the day, you're coughing, <coughs> you know. And a few seconds later, <coughs> again. And Paul was saying that his prayer life was like that. That not just during the time that he sits apart in his inner room or his closet, but throughout the day intermittently, he'd be shooting up prayers, like this chronic cough. Praying without ceasing. And you know, we can do the same thing. We can be driving around and thoughts just occur to us. People that the Lord has brought into our life. And when that happens, just shoot up a, a prayer. You don't have to go into your, you know, pull over to the side of the road. and You can just, whatever you're doing, just shoot up a prayer to God. Lord, bless that, that person. Bless Joe or bless Susan or bless that persecuted ch church over in North Korea, Lord. Make them strong. You know, as things occur to you, just pray throughout the day unceasingly they're ceaseless and then third thing I notice about his prayers is that they were submissive and that comes out in verse 10 he says always in my prayers making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you see Paul says I, I pray for you all the time and every time I pray I pray that I can come to you I pray that God would make it possible that if I could just come to you, I want to visit you. And so far, I haven't been able to. The circumstances have never been right for me to be able to make this, this journey to you. But I'm praying that now at last, by the will of God, I might succeed in coming to you. 
So Paul wanted to come, but it was only by the will of God that he wanted to come. And that's really good because when Paul did finally visit them, it wasn't the way he expected. He expected in a few months he's going to be visiting them. Well, it took over three years. And before that happened, he was arrested. He was imprisoned for like a couple of years. He was in prison. (laughs) He went through riots and mobs. There were plots on his life. He suffered a shipwreck. I mean, if he knew all this ahead of time, I wonder, would he be praying, Lord, let me come to those believers in Rome, (laughs) you know? But it's, yeah, that's right. He was bitten by a snake, threw it off into the fire. Wow, talk about a man going through trials. But here he's praying, Lord, I want to come, but I want to come by the will of God. Is it your will that I could come? You know, sometimes the Word of Faith teachers will say that to say, Lord, if it's your will, let this happen or that happen. They say, that's just a cop-out. That's just a faith cop-out. You just need to believe it. Well, the problem with that is that Jesus did a lot of copping out then because Jesus said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, thy will be done, right? Jesus gave us the model of submissive prayer to the will of God. Paul followed that model here in Romans chapter 1. If at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. And we need to have the same attitude. Sometimes we don't know the will of God, right? I mean, lots of times. We don't know the will of God. That happens to me a lot of times when I pray for healing for someone. Right? We... It's not always God's sovereign will to bring healing to a person. So we'll pray and we will, you know, we'll do our best to just pray and put our heart into that prayer. But in the end, we know, Lord, if it's your will. Um, so Paul's a good example for us here. His prayers were secret, ceaseless, and submissive. But let's move along to verses 11 to 13. I want you to see the longings of his heart. He says in verse 11, For I long to see you. I long to see you. But why? Why, Paul, did you long to see them? Why was it, why was there this burning in your heart to see the Roman Christians? I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. He longed to see them because he wanted to strengthen them. That's what the word established means. It means to strengthen, to make firm. He wanted their firm, their faith to be firm and strong. He wanted them to be brought to spiritual maturity. And so the reason he wants to see them is so that he can give them one of his spiritual gifts. I think he probably means the Lord has gifted me in revelation and teaching and preaching. I want to come and I want to, I want you to benefit from the gifts God has given to me. I want them to make you established in your faith. Now, isn't it interesting that the reason Paul wanted to see them was so that he could serve them? The reason he wanted to be with these Christians is so that he could give to them. So often when I talk to a person and I say, you know, what church do you go to? Oh, I go to this this or that church. Why do you go there? Well, I go because I get fed when I go there. You know, that's always the answer. Or the or if you say, why did you leave that church? I wasn't being fed. That's why I left that church, right? How many times have you heard that one? I just wasn't being fed. Paul didn't come so he could get fed. He wanted to feed. He wanted to serve. 
He wanted to give to these Christians. And what an awesome example this is for every one of us. You don't have to be a preacher to have this attitude when you come here on Sunday morning. You can be praying all through the week, Lord, give me something so that I can help somebody in the body. You know, Lord, Lord, help me to encourage somebody. I, one of my friends, Kelly Salis, would say there was a period in his life where he would pray every morning on Sunday before he went to church, Lord, would you just show me how I can encourage one person today at church? And he said the Lord always answered that prayer. There was always somebody that he met that he was able to encourage. And if you would pray about that before you come, God will answer that prayer. You'll be God's means of blessing other people like Paul was. That's great. I love that. Um, he says over in Colossians 1, verse 28, and this is kind of a, a verse that I love as well. I kind of take it from my life verse in terms of ministry. Paul says, 128, Colossians, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's Paul's goal. I want every one of those believers scattered throughout these Gentile churches, I want them all to be made complete in Jesus Christ. And to the Romans, I want you to be established. And I want to come to use my spiritual gifts to help you get there. Now, folks, every one of you have spiritual gifts of one sort or another. Maybe you've never figured out exactly what they are, but you have them. Make it your ambition and your goal that when you assemble together with the saints, you would use that gift to strengthen the body. It might be serving behind the scenes. You know, a lot of you are just awesome at that. A lot of times when you leave, we'll go into the kitchen and it's all clean. The whole, the whole kitchen's clean because somebody's just serving in the body. It might be the gift of encouragement. Um, Paul talks about the gift of exhortation. You're just good at stirring people and encouraging people. So do it. When we have our sharing time, encourage, exhort. Maybe it's God has gifted you to be able to minister in song. If that's the case, use your gift. We'll make room for it in our services. The, the, see, the church is not about the, the pastor or the pastors doing the ministry. They have a part to play, but they don't have the only part to play. You have a role to play, just like Paul had a role to play. And so use your gifts. Don't let them lie dormant. Paul said, employ your spiritual gifts in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You've got to employ them. And you know what that means, right? To employ someone, you put them to work. Put your gift to work. We're going to be accountable to God one day on, on the gifts that he's given to us. And did we use them for him? Or did we just put them in a napkin and bury it under the ground? Remember what God said, or the Lord in the parable said to that servant? You worthless and wicked slave. That's what his estimation of the one who did nothing with the spiritual gifts he was given. So Paul's goal there was to strengthen the church. Don't come just to be fed and don't leave if you don't feel like you're being fed. Come to feed somebody else. You know, that's the mark of spiritual maturity, right? If you have, <laughs> if a baby is the one who always wants to be fed, Right? But when you grow up, you're supposed to be able to feed another baby. Right? So let's grow up. Let's grow up into Christ. But that's not the only reason Paul wanted to visit them. Look at verse 12. That is that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So what he means there is that I don't 
I know, I realize that I'm not the only one that's going to be giving. I know that you're going to be giving to me too. And I need to receive what you have to offer to me. So here we have one of the great apostles telling these believers in Rome, I need you and I need your gifts and I need to be encouraged by you. You see, nobody is above uh, needing to be encouraged by the rest of the body. And nobody is so low that they don't have something to contribute. You can be a brand new Christian, but if the Holy Spirit resides in you, you've got something to offer somebody else. We, what, what we're saying here is that we all need each other. We're in, interdependent on one another. The Lord has designed the body that way so that we do need each other. In fact, let's just read it. Paul goes on for quite a while in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he just explains and amplifies and goes into detail about this one subject. Let's, let's read it. It's 1 Corinthians 12, 14, all the way through 26. Paul says, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, Because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member... Where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. He's saying, folks, we need each other. I need your gift, you need my gift. That's why it's wrong for you to say, well, I just don't feel like going to church today, I'm going to stay home. Why? Because God has called you to be a contributing member to that body. And if you decide, I'm just going to stay home, you're saying, I am not going to bring the gift God has given me to help those people. I don't really care about them, I don't love them, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Do you see how self-centered that is? That's why it's important that we are, as far as we can, that we're committed and faithful and regular in being part of the assembling together that the God has given to the church. And that when we come, we don't just sit there, that we get involved in, in seeking to help one another in our faith. So there we have his longings expressed. He wants to be with them. The final thing we see here is his obligations. 14 and 15 of Romans 1. He says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, who was Paul obligated to? 
usually we jump to the conclusion that he feels like he's obligated to God. But he doesn't say that here. You know, the King James says, I am debtor. And most people think, well, he says, I am a debtor to God. That's really not what he's saying. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He's obligated to people. He senses this obligation to other people. Well, which people? Greeks, that's the sophisticated culture pe cultured people. Barbarians, that's the unsophisticated, uncultured people. Wise people, foolish people, pretty much all people, right? <laughs> Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, so amongst all the Gentiles, I'm obligated to every one of them. Whether they're really wise or not so wise, whether they're cultured or uncultured, I don't care who they are, I, I feel this sense of obligation to those people. Now, why did people, why did Paul feel this obligation? We might jump to the conclusion it's because of verse 1. Because he was a bondservant of Christ Jesus and called as an apostle. And it's true, he was a slave of Christ. He was called to be an apostle. And so we say if a slave is responsible to do what his master tells him to do, and Christ had called him as an apostle and told him to go and preach, and all that is true. But I don't think that really hits on what Paul is getting at here. Because if we say that Paul only did what he did because he was commanded to by Jesus and he was obeying God's commands, it would imply that he did it out of a sense of distasteful uh, responsibility. Like this was a distasteful chore that he had to do. He had to discharge it, but he didn't want to. He felt like he was forced into it against his will. But that's not what he puts here in verse 15. He says, for my part, I am eager <laughs> to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Eager. He, he wasn't dragged kicking and screaming to do this work against his will. He wanted to do it. He felt a sense of eagerness to get the gospel to all of these kinds of people. So I don't think it was just because he was called as an apostle and a servant of Jesus Christ, although that's part of it. I think there was something more that motivated him to feel this sense of obligation. What do you think Paul felt obligated to do? He said, I'm obligated to Greeks, barbarians, wise and foolish. Well, what, what was he supposed to do from this obligation? Preach the gospel. That's what he says in verse 15. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel. I feel obligated to all these people, and the way I discharge my obligation is to preach the gospel to them. That's how Paul felt. It wasn't just because he was called as an apostle. I think it was because Paul knew that he had the cure for their desperate condition. God had given Paul grace. Paul knew that everybody else needs this grace. Paul had received salvation. He knew that they needed salvation. And he felt obligated because he knew the way that they could be saved. And he was able to give them that. Isn't it frustrating when you know the gospel and you want to give it to people who desperately need it and they don't even care about it? That happens to us every single time we go out and just knock on doors and say, Hi, I'm Brian. I'm from the Bridge Church. And this is my wife, Debbie. This is Myong. This is what happened yesterday. <laughs> and we're here... Um, 
God is, God is wanting us just to come and share with you the good news. How you can be reconciled to God. Oh, no, I'm too busy. I'm leaving right now. No, no, I'm not interested. Goodbye. <laughs> Nobody wants that. They're all dying of this condition. They're all going, slipping into eternity without Christ in hell. And they have no desire whatsoever to know the solution for this condition that they've got. It's frustrating. But Paul feels a sense of obligation because he knew the gospel. He wants to give the gospel to everybody. It's kind of like a doctor who has the remedy for this, this plague that's sweeping through his village in, in the medieval days, you know, the black plague or whatever would just sweep through and most of the population would be wiped out. And there, there's someone there that has the remedy. They have the antidote for that and they hoard it. They just keep it from themselves and their wife and their children. They won't give it to anybody else. Paul wasn't like that. He says, I feel the sense of obligation to give it out. People need it. I want to give it out. Do you remember the story in 2 Kings 6 and 7 when the Arameans came up and they besieged Samaria? And back in those days, if you wanted to just um, win victory over your neighboring nation, what you would do is you would go to that city and you would put all of your soldiers around it and you'd just camp out and wait. It could be months. But what you're doing is you're starving them because they can't get out of the city. So once the food in the city is gone, they start to starve to death. And that was what was happening in 2 Kings chapter 6. There's even a story of two women who made a pact together. And they said, okay, we'll boil my son today and eat him. But then tomorrow we'll boil your child and we'll eat him. So the first woman boiled her child. They ate it. But the next day, the woman hid her child. And she was so mad about this, she went to the king and said, you've got to give me justice because she's not killing her child and letting me eat it. That's how desperate things had gotten in Samaria during this time. In fact, they're even selling doves dung to people. Honestly, that, I mean, that's right in the Bible. <laughs> I guess people were eating dung just to, just to survive. They were selling donkey's heads. People were eating donkey's heads. Anyways, not to get too graphic or gross here, but that's what's how people are literally starving to death. The animals are starving. And there's four lepers in this city. They're out by the gates of the city. They're not permitted to be with the rest of the people because they have leprosy. And they start talking to each other and they say, what are we doing here? I mean, we're all going to die. They're going to die. We're going to die. Why are we just doing nothing? Why don't we take our chances? Let's hop over the gates. Let's just go over to the Arameans and let's surrender, maybe they'll have mercy on us. Maybe it'll be better there than it is here. So that's what they did. These four lepers went over, and you know what they found? They were all gone. Because <laughs> God supernaturally had made them hear all the sounds of this great multitude of horses and chariots, and they thought this enemy army was coming, that the Israelites had hired the Egyptians to come and wipe out the Arameans, and so they fled for their lives, and they left all their food, they left all their horses, they left all their clothes, and so these four lepers, they're going through and they're going to one tent and they gorge themselves and they take the gold and the silver and they take the clothes and they start hiding it. Then they go in the next tent and they gorge themselves. And then one of them says, wait a minute, what are we doing? What are we doing? This is a day of good news. We, and we're holding it in. We're keeping silent. If we keep silent about this, 
The morning is going to overtake us and we're going to be punished. We've got to go back and tell those people that are starving to death what we found. Folks, today is a day of good news. It's a day of good news. You have the good news. It's your responsibility. I'll even say it's an obligation to perishing mankind all around you to somehow try to get this antidote for their deadly disease to them. Even if they don't want it, we have to try. Because one day they are going to desperately have wished that they had listened to what you had to say. And some of them will, because God will make them listen. It's like if we noticed a family sitting in their kitchen over here, eating their supper, and then we noticed the back of their house was all in flames. Would you just sit around saying, oh, that's not in my concern. I'll just let it burn down. No, none of you would do that because you have the love of God in your heart. You'd go and you'd knock on the door. And if you couldn't get their attention, you'd take a baseball bat and knock the door down if you had to and say, get out. Your house is going down in flames and you're going to be burned up. We've got to try. And, and I'll just be real honest with you. I'm getting to the point where I don't really know how. I don't really have any real good ideas anymore. We, we, we come away sometimes discouraged when we try to go out and share the gospel. We just need to persevere. You know, I'm sure Brother Eddie is, he's on the streets. It's not real encouraging out there because you get a lot of hecklers. You get a people, go away. We don't want what you have to say. You just have to have stick to and you have to persevere if you believe God has called you to do that. And God has definitely called every single one of us to somehow get the gospel to other people. Let's be thinking about how we can do that. Praying. Maybe there's ways we haven't thought of that would be more effective than ways that we've already tried. But let's be praying and thinking and dialoguing with each other. Maybe the Lord will give us new ways where we can more effectively get our gospel out to people. So to draw all this down to a conclusion, let's just ask ourselves some questions. Paul has bared his heart. He tells us what he thanks God for, what he prays for, what he longs for, what he feels obligated for. Do you feel a kinship with him this morning? Do you thank God when you see him working, even when you're not involved at all in that work? Does it excite you? Does it make you feel thrilled and joyous? Do you pray like Paul? Do you have a, a could you say, God's my witness is how I pray? Nobody else really knows, but God does. God sees, God hears, He knows all about it. Do you set apart a portion of your day listening to God as He speaks in His Word and talking to God in prayer that that's a portion of your day where you're connecting with God each day? If that's not happening regularly, you need to really change things because that's the most important thing you can be doing every day. Do you long to be with the church? And if you do, do you long to be with the church so that you can give something to the church? Do you desire the ministry of every other member of the body? No matter who they are, how long they've been saved, what their social status is or anything else, do you, do you long for what the Lord would give to you through that person. I think we should. 
And do you feel a sense of deep responsibility to bring the gospel to the rest of mankind? You know, we've got a huge job ahead of us. And if we thought it was all on our shoulders, it would be very, very bleak. We'd want to give up. But thank God it's not all on our shoulders. The Lord is the one who's going to make his word effective. We have a sovereign God who's working. He has a people he's going to save in this world. And really it's a privilege if you think about it. It's like a dad going out to, to rake the leaves. And he says, son, come along with me. His little boy's two years old. He can barely carry, barely carry the rake. You know, he makes a stab at trying to rake the leaves. The dad could get done with that job twice as fast if he did it by himself. It's a privilege. The little boy has been called into working together with his father to accomplish a goal. God could get this work done a lot better without us if he wanted to. But he's given you the privilege of co-laboring with him. Don't, don't neglect the privilege. It is a privilege. On, on Judgment Day, when God is handing out rewards, we'll see how much of a privilege it was that he let us co-labor with him. Amen. Lord, we just lift up to you the things we've spoken. We ask, Lord God, that our sense of desire, eagerness, and obligation to get the gospel to lost people would increase. We pray that our prayer lives would reflect a living faith. Help us, Lord, to make you our great and number one priority over all things. We pray our thanksgivings would be rich. Our longings from our heart would be something like Paul's where we want to be with each other and not just to be fed or to get or to receive, but we, we really, really want to come to be with them so we can give them something because we love them. Lord, work these things into each one of us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.